Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome to another edition of Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, Moving to Live is committed to providing concise but interesting podcasts for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados. We are a podcast about movement, so we look for people who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. What we found with many of our interviews is somebody that we interview either for Moving to Live in the past or our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, recommends somebody else. In this case, our current guest for today was recommended to us by Dr. Justin Berthold, an osteopathic physician in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When we interviewed him, he said, you need to interview my mentor. He has a podcast, and I pulled up the podcast, which we will probably talk about a little bit later in the interview. And what really attracted me, the first podcast episode I listened to was, Is Your Physician an Asshole? And immediately when I saw that title, it's like, okay, this is somebody who doesn't take themselves too seriously and is willing to talk about things that are really interesting. I'm happy today to be talking to Dr. Gary Chimes, who is a physician. He is a physical medicine physician in the Seattle, Washington area, formerly in the Pittsburgh area, working as a physician. And what makes this especially apropos is when we were discussing when we could potentially do the podcast, he said, can I walk my dog and talk on a phone while I do this? So obviously, Dr. Chimes is a believer that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Dr. Chimes, thank you for taking time on a Saturday afternoon to talk to Moving to Live. Thanks. And uh, my dog, Bucky, really appreciates it. Uh, you know, as you were saying, one of the things I try as much as possible is to not talk on the phone unless I'm walking my dog as a way to get, just make sure I get some movement into my day. And I have to wonder if this is something that you did in your training. As I mentioned, uh, Dr. Berthold is trained under you or did his residency under you. And he's commented that a lot of times when he talks to a patient and if ha- they seem to have difficulty opening up, he asks them to go for a walk around the block with you. Is that something that you taught your students when you were at Pittsburgh? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, it, I, I'm, I'm touched that that's an anecdote that stayed, that resonated with Justin. I think one of the things I just wanted to do is just deconstruct what the office visit was and deconstruct a lot of the assumptions of what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do on a doctor's visit. And, you know, so much of what we do is based on the compliance requirements from insurance companies, specifically the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. And people just assume you have to do things in a certain way. And one of them is, you know, sitting at a computer and typing notes while you're talking to somebody. And you don't have to do that. Uh, so I would love to say that I do all my patient interviews while walking, which is not true. Uh, but there are times where that can be a helpful way to send the right message to a patient. I think we're going to talk about that more a little bit later. I was listening to some of your podcast episodes, and it sounds like your backstory is a lot like me in that at some point in your life, you realize that, you know, I like soccer, but I'm not a very good soccer player. So to end up where you are in the Seattle area as a physical medicine physician, let's go all the way back to the beginning related to movement, were you somebody who was active from the very get-go or did your parents push it in, push you into it? Or was this something that your parents were active and it was just kind of accepted in your household that parents are active, kids are active too? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I'm probably, I can very legitimately say I'm a person for whom my thoughts about movement go back to the womb in that I'm a twin and I'm a twin sister. And, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1973, so I grew up in an era where women's activities uh, and opportunities for sports was low. And my mom was a three-sport college athlete at Hunter College in New York. And so one of the things then growing up is I thought about movement, but I thought about it in a very specific way, which is looking at the differences between the way men and women move. And I had, you know, a perfect age match peer to gauge these things against. And so that's eventually, you know, and we'll probably get into this into my PhD career, looking at female-specific sports biomechanics. And a lot of my clinical practice now where I look at gender differences in athletic performance and the impact of hormones, the impact of body structure. Uh, but, yeah, I think it was really – I don't remember a time – where I didn't think about movement. And would you say when you were doing this, was this something that some of your friends when you were a, a kid and an adolescent kind of looked at you and said, you're a little bit weird? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I am weird. Uh, so, but I don't know that specifically to this that people were commenting. I think, but like just one of my really early memories is uh, my father teaching me to do things like brushing my teeth and riding my bike and, wiping my butt or whatever these things were. And, um, you know, as is the case, women tend to hit their developmental milestones earlier. So I remember, you know, sitting on, I think the toilet, washing my sister brush her teeth by herself and my dad having to help me with that or, you know, watching my sister ride a bike while my dad was like, you know, having to give extra time for me to do it. And so I think just being cognizant of these developmental differences I, I was just very aware of it. So, um, you know, by the time I'm five or six or seven, where I'm starting to get physically stronger than my sister, I had a lot of experiential data about what that means. 
and I know a lot of people that we've interviewed for both Moving to Live and FitLab, PGH, uh, Moving to Live, one of the people we interviewed is Rick Howard, who has a phrase or a comment that I'm probably paraphrasing here that uh, children are not miniature adults, so you don't give them miniature adult training programs. The other thing that we know, as you alluded to, is males and females develop differently. And at some point, you probably notice that, oops, I'm better than my sister at these things. And at what point yeah. was that, if you remember? Uh, so we, my older brother was a very, I, I had the gift of being very mediocre at a lot of sports, which I think is helpful because I got to do a lot of breadth of different sports. But we have an older brother, Michael, who is, was an excellent swimmer. And so as a consequence, Jill, my sister, my twin sister and I were competitively swimming from probably around age six or seven. And uh, we're... I was faster than Jill almost immediately. And then somewhere around 11 or 12, when Jill started to have early puberty, she got faster than me. And that lasted for probably about three years until puberty hit for me. And at the time, I had no awareness. It was like, oh, these are you know, being explained by hormonal levels. But as we started, you know, as I became an adult and started studying this, she was like, oh, yeah, of course, this is just a, cute cur- a curve of puberty. And I'm curious about that because I've known a lot of people who have been age group swimmers. Does your sister still swim? Because I know sometimes people, when they swim at a very young age, they either find that that's a lifetime sport or they get what we term black line fever. And once they're done with their swimming careers in either high school or college, they never get in the pool again. Yeah, she didn't. She, um, she was one of these people who her best year was probably as a freshman or sophomore and she was a butterflyer. And, uh, a pattern I've seen is when you look at athletes, athletes tend to be strong or tend to be flexible, but don't tend to be both. And the main exception to that tends to be female swimmers who are both strong and flexible. And especially in the butterflyers, you can see that they're strong enough to pull their joints in a way that they really weren't designed to do and end up developing shoulder problems. You know, and coupling this with the fact that we had pretty mediocre coaching back then, uh, she was one of these many people who developed shoulder injuries. And, you know, she had, she finished her high school career. She was a two-time captain of the swim team, but it's not something that she continues. Uh, you know, my brother and I did this different ways. My brother does master swimming, and I do triathlons. So I swim a little bit, uh, but uh, we're, we're, I, I'd say my brother's really the one who's a lifelong swimmer. I think from listening to one of your podcasts, I think a term that you, I don't know if you coined it or you've uh, heard it someplace else that really plays through with ath- athletic performance is uh, you talked about accurate calibration. And I think when we talk about yeah. your background, I think this is something that people for moving to live who are listening. When I heard it, uh, I started taking notes because it's like, you know, I've thought of this before, but I never really put it down as far as what it really meant. If you could just kind of explain to us what you mean when you talk about accurate calibration, and this holds true whether it's athletic performance, professional performance, or I would imagine also interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm glad you're touching on this because this is really important to me is that we always have a mismatch in the world between what we envision and what is reality. And we really rely on people external to us to help calibrate our judgments. And it's something that I'm, it's really important to me because I think I, I tend to be a creative thinker 
And one of the downsides of creative thinking is sometimes you have ideas that really aren't great, um, either because they're just bad ideas or they're not implementable. Um, is it okay if I give a saucy example? Yeah, uh, perfectly okay. Okay. Uh, so I'm fairly recently married. I was married about a year and a half ago. And my wife and I uh, got married in the summer in the Seattle area, which is so beautiful. We said, let's wait until it's kind of dank and not that nice in the winter to go on our honeymoon. We went to South Africa. And uh, when we were in South Africa, we went on a safari. And our safari uh, uh, accommodations had an outdoor shower. And one of the things that my wife had done, and this is not characteristic of her at all, but I was naked outside in the, uh, in the outdoor shower, and she took a photo of me. And I realized I've not seen what my backside looks like from top to bottom, maybe ever, but certainly not in a very long time. And I realized it looked a lot different than I anticipated. And that led to a thought experiment I had, which is who knows what I look like better, my wife or me? And the more I thought about it, it became very obvious to me that my wife had a much better perception of what I look like in the sense that I pretty much only look at the top half of my body in the mirror, like when I'm washing my face, where I'm not wearing glasses. And then the other thing that really affects it is that my wife has known me for about four years, where I've known me for 44 years, and therefore she isn't biased by my prior perception. She doesn't, when I look at the mirror, I see my 40-year-old self, my 30-year-old self, my 20-year-old self. She just kind of sees me for what I am. And so it's so helpful to have that calibration to get a realistic sense of what you are. And then this applies to ideas. So, you know, I'm in a private practice with a spectacular clinical partner, Garrett Hyman. And, you know, sometimes he and I will observe something. They'll say, you know, I've noticed something I've never noticed before. Am I crazy or is this something? And having that kind of trustful relationship you know, really quite an intimate relationship to help bounce ideas off of that really, you know, and, and this is, you know, you as a PhD, you understand this, is you want to be able to, to kind of winnow through your ideas and figure out which ones are valid, which ones aren't, or how do you have to nuance things to make them more accurate. And I have a professional question along those lines. I know I have one or two colleagues that if I want honest feedback, you know, and they're the same way with me, I can call them up and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about this particular topic. Am I way off base or is this pretty much what's going on? Do you find that's the same too? You have a few professional colleagues in a professional realm that whether you have a patient that you're wondering about or, or something in an article you're writing or you just see something in the literature and you're kind of like, this just doesn't seem right, or I don't think this way. Am I way off base, or is this another way that's pretty credible? Do you find that you have a few people that you can bounce these off of? Yeah, so I would say I think I'm a pretty massive outlier on this. I'm, I have a lot of people like that. I think it's probably one of my biggest strengths is that I have a pretty high willingness to be mentored. Uh, an example I can give, I'll, I'll be a little bit vague about the specific people, but at one of my academic jobs, I was working, I had an opportunity for this type of nerve study we do called electrodiagnostic testing. And there was a very senior experienced person who had insisted that he wanted to review the first like 20 that I did at the new institution to look at the quality that I was doing. 
And I heard heard somebody else who was in a similar position when they were hired and spoke of this with resentment, you know, thinking, I'm a big boy, I don't need that. Uh, I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as this is an unbelievable privilege and that I have an experienced physician who cares to take the time to look at what I'm doing and to give me feedback. And I got a lot of useful pearls from that experience. But I think uh, everybody has some level of ego preservation. So, and especially in the world of medicine, I think it's more prevalent in the MD world than the PhD world, having lived in both. People tend to be defensive and not as receptive to feedback as they should be. It's interesting that you say that. I obviously don't have any experience in the medical field. Uh, I do know in the PhD field, I've talked to friends of mine, and, and it seems like there's two groups of individuals in academia. There's the group that's very open to criticism, um, and then there's the group that gets very, very defensive if there's any sort of criticism, whether it's positive or it's negative. And kind of to go down the rabbit hole, so to speak, with this, with your experiences, what you see with the uh, accurate calibration and getting feedback from people, do you find that people who are more receptive to receiving honest feedback uh, are more comfortable with who they are? I what I'm thinking of, yeah. what I'm thinking of when I hear this is one of the podcasts I listened to that you did is you talked about your amateur soccer career, which sounded surprisingly similar to mine in high school. And yeah. you had a very accurate perception at a certain point that, okay, I'm not very good. I enjoy it, but I'm yeah. not as good as some of the other kids. Do you find that the people that you interact with who are better able to take the criticism or the feedback are more comfortable with who they are, whether they're rock stars or they're mediocre? Yeah, and I think I'll just use myself as an example because I think I've gotten better at this as I've gotten older. Um, so uh, an episode I remember where I was really poor at receiving feedback, and I think it was a consequence of my own insecurity. When I was doing my residency training in New Jersey, I had a wonderful mentor named Stephen Kirschbloom, who's... I mean, he's on the short list of who is the best doctor in the country. He was the guy who took care of Christopher Reeves when he was paralyzed. And I had a patient who was in an area where it had a lot of Jewish population. I'm Jewish. And I, the guy's primary language was Yiddish. And, you know, I know maybe 20 words in Yiddish. So I'm, I'm not even conversant with fluent in any sense whatsoever. But I was, you know, really wanted to show my gumption and my ability to manage this patient. And Dr. Kirschbaum came by and he's fluent in Yiddish and he asked if he could help, you know, with the translation. And I said, uh, inaccurately that I can speak Yiddish. And it was, you know, when I think about that moment, it's very embarrassing at my hubris or my unwillingness to be receptive to feedback over someone who's just so genuine in their desire to help. And I think that when people get defensive about being calibrated, I think it's almost always going to be rooted in some sense of inadequacy or just not really feeling comfortable in the uncomfortable or uncomfortable in knowing what you can and can't do. We're going to switch gears a little bit and go back to 
kind of how you ended up where you are now. You, as you've alluded to, and as we'll have in the show notes, you not only are a physician and MD, but you also have a PhD, which for people who are listening who aren't in the know, that just, in essence, that means you got a hell of a lot of education and a heck of a lot of perseverance. What was it that you finished high school, uh, as I've already alluded to, and I'm, I'm not saying this to be negative because it sounds like your soccer career was very similar to mine and your athletic career was similar to mine and that you got the movement out of it, even though you maybe were never a super good athlete. But what was it that uh, when you went on to college to say, you know, I think I want to get go into medicine and then to go beyond that and say, okay, I'm going to do the MD slash PhD route, which is... I would assume a little bit more difficult than just getting the MD degree or just getting the PhD degree. Yeah. So when I went to college, I had a few spots in mind. I think I was thinking math professor, specifically focusing on topology, uh, thinking about being a professional wrestler, specifically like Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, I was thinking about being an MD, PhD. I was thinking about being commissioner of baseball. Those were sort of my four ideas. And I, you know, the pro wrestling one was the one I realized where it had the narrowest window. So I joined the gymnastics club for six months with the goal of being able to do what's called a moonsault, which is a standing back flip off of a, about a five foot platform. And I kept landing on my neck into the gymnastics pit. So the gymnastics coach really encouraged me that that was not a great career choice. Uh, and, uh, and then in terms of being a math professor, I was very good. Uh, it's probably the area where I have the highest aptitude. I remember I was, I ended up being a double major in both uh, math and zoology. And I ended up talking to one of my mentors at the university of Wisconsin, Richard Askey. I said, you know, I'm good at math and I think I can do something with this, but I think my heart is more in movement. And he said that is you know, incredible news. And he had this example of people who were good at math that went into other fields and said, like, you know, we really need people who are good at math doing things other than theoretical mathematics. And so having that blessing made things a little bit easier. And then I had the privilege of working in an incredible lab when I was in college, a guy named Ted Garland, who's now at UC Riverside and worked with a guy named John Swallow, who's now at UC Denver, and Pat Carter, who's now at Washington State. And they were in a field that was called evolutionary physiology, which is a variant on exercise physiology, but looking at organisms as how they change as they evolve and how they're adapting to their environment. And we did some really fun research. Uh, there were some people in the lab working on lizards. So I was working on mice, and we basically had like a mouse Olympics and then we would selectively breed different mice based on how they performed in the Olympics. And it was su super cool. And I learned a ton, um, both in terms of physiology, but also in terms of statistics, because it required a lot of multi, uh, multiple regression analysis. And I said, this is awesome, but I like humans. And so that was where I realized that I was going to shift towards doing the MD-PhD was to learn about how to do basically fitness analysis, but on humans. And how was it that you decided that, you know, I think medical school is the way to go versus uh, applied exercise physiology, for example, where you were somebody who worked with cardiac rehab or uh, performance? 
That's a great question. So, yes, I was originally thinking more of the PhD. Uh, but one of the guys I was talking to said, if you're going to be doing researches on humans, you're probably going to need a co-investigator who's an MD. And, you know, you're allowed to be your own co-investigator if you're an MD, MD PhD. So that uh, was one of the starting points. And then, you know, I had an incredibly fortuitous uh, experience that there's a guy named Randy Sussman, who is an anatomy professor at Stony Brook. I think he's actually the chair right now. And he happened to be visiting uh, University of Wisconsin because he was dating a professor at Wisconsin. And I saw him speak, and he was looking at uh, essentially biomechanics of primates, like bonobos and chimpanzees. And it was uh, by far the best lecture I'd seen while I was there. And, you know, so I applied to Randy PhD program. I applied to Stony Brook in Long Island, which I would never have even heard of otherwise. And just by random chance, the day that I interviewed at Stony Brook, uh, the normal interviewer was sick. So Randy Sussman ended up being the substitute interviewer. And when he asked, why did I apply to Stony Brook? I said, well, because I saw you lecture, which I think was very uh, favorable on the interview. Switching gears a little bit, you've mentioned a couple of times throughout the interview that move, you've basically been involved in movement all your life. And I know as somebody who teaches in academia and talks to other professionals, there's really two groups of individuals involved in the movement field. There's the group that they make it a priority to keep themselves moving. So they kind of practice what they preach. And then there's the ones who turn into the hardcore academics or the hardcore researchers or I know in the case of physicians, uh, the physician who just doesn't have enough time to work out and health problems go. How did you manage through the dual uh, MD-PhD program to stay active, or did you take a hiatus during that? Uh, no, I actually ramped it up, uh, which is something I can't do now. Um, so I had had as my goal to do an Ironman triathlon. It was you know, a big bucket list item for me, and I ended up tearing up my knee uh, two weeks before I graduated from college. And my goal was to do it the summer between college and med school. So when I was in the summer before med school, I was rehabbing pretty intensively. And then I did my first iron, half Ironman between the first and second year of med school. And then the summer after my second year of med school, which is before I started the PhD part of my training, that's when I did the Ironman. Now, I was during grad school, I had a lot of flexibility of hours, so I was pretty, uh, pretty hardcore about my training back then. Uh, I've definitely had to learn tricks to be more time efficient as I've become an adult. And I'm curious, as somebody who did his first Ironman in graduate school, what Ironman did you do? Uh, I did the Vine Man, which I don't think exists anymore uh, in Santa Rosa, California. The interesting thing about about that is that we were talking before we started recording about how I found that so many people that I interview that maybe I don't know, there's a background, two or three degrees of separation that they know somebody. Uh, a gentleman yeah. who, who I used to swim with when I lived in Lexington actually won the Vine Man a number of times, Brad Rex, who I believe was the announcer for a number oh, wow. of years. So, oh, so, fantastic. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very small world and... For those of you who are yeah. lis listening, if you're triathlon people, Brad was a swimmer at the University of Kentucky. He was about six foot five with a shaved head and could actually run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So you alluded to some of the, you had to be uh, fairly well motivated to do that. And it's interesting because I know when I was in graduate school, the training was a priority. And about two years into grad school, uh, my mentor, because I worked two years uh, before my starting my PhD studies and my mentor who basically encouraged me to PhD studies had told my doctoral advisor that I was a better person and easier to get along with when I worked out regularly. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all are. And and I mean, it it never had occurred to me, but after about uh, two years, I saw my mentor at a conference and he said, uh, are you still working out? And I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, you know, I I mentioned to your your advisor that if, if you got really bad, to send you out on a run. Sorry, did I lose you for a second? Uh, let me, me. We can hear you. We went. Th- we went through a windy area. And for those of okay, you, gotcha. for those of you who are listening, as we said at the beginning, we're talking to Dr. Gary Chimes, and his agreement for uh, appearing on the podcast was, "Could he walk his dog while doing this?" And since we are a podcast about movement, of course, I said yes. So occasionally we get a little bit of wind noise. We've been talking to Dr. Chimes about. His experiences growing up in New Jersey, we we covered a little bit about accurate calibration and how he made the decision to do a dual MD-PhD study program based primarily on the fact that he heard somebody speak and wanted to go learn more from him. We're going to come back in two weeks. I really want to learn about how you transitioned as an MD, PhD from working in academia to a two-person practice. I believe the correct term in medicine is micro-practice. Is that correct? Uh, I, I think a micro-practice would probably be more akin to what Dr. Berthold was when he was a single. It's a, small, it's a very small practice. I don't know if we meet the criteria for micro-practice. So we want to... Similar concepts. So we want to thank Dr. Chimes for telling us a little bit about his story. We'll come back in two weeks and get more into the professional aspects. I think what's really important about this is to learn what a physical medicine physician is. And if you look on his website, which we'll have in the show notes with his partner, it's very clear that he's not a physician who basically says, stop exercising if you're injured or take these drugs. It's clear not only from his personal life, but also his professional practice that what he does is movement really is part of it. So Dr. Chimes, thank you for joining us for part one. And we look forward to talking to you in part two. Likewise. Life complete. Uh, Dr. Chimes, I want to thank you for taking time and thank your dog for taking time to take a long walk to talk to uh, Moving to Live. Yeah, Bucky is super appreciative. We've uh, gotten in, it looks like, about 14,000 steps while we've been talking. So uh, thank you for helping us both. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about moving to live. 
It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.